This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. You know, um, we've been going through a lot of parables. Uh, matter of fact, I think that's all we've had since I've been here, is that it's a part of the electionary reading, and so we have this huge chunk of parables that we're going through. And uh, some have been pretty edgy, you know, and they make us stop and wonder what Jesus is up to um, in these parables. On one hand, they, they, they shock our sensibilities, and on the other, they make sense of that shock. Um, they reveal the kingdom of God as something that's different from what we imagine. And they expose our resistance to the kingdom that is being revealed to us. I think it's because, um, I think it's because we like, we like to fit the kingdom of God into our own world view. We like to... Oh, very good. Yes, God thinks a lot the way I think, and that's very good. Yes. Um, When actually we are being called to reshape our worldview in light of God's kingdom. And the classic tradition, you know, of of wanting the kingdom to fit into our worldview, the, the classic tradition calls it hubris. You know, and that is... Um... That is uh, uh, pride or arrogance that's in there. And I think Jesus' parables challenge our self-made worldviews to show us a reality that isn't gilded by our own egos, but it is illuminated by the heart of God. So today's scripture is a great example. Now... I think a part to have the parables impact, you almost have to, to take another step back and ask yourself, how am I interpreting this parable? You know, there's one way of reading it that reinforces um, a worldview. And then there's another way of reading it that invites us to transform our worldview. And... Um, you know how this parable is usually interpreted? I mean, you've heard it, right? You know, uh, the, uh, a hypocritical Pharisee and a humble, uh, repentant text collector. That's how we kind of frame it, you know. And the first one is full of himself, and the latter pours himself out before God. The moral being not to place too much self-righteous trust in ourselves, like the Pharisee did. And, you know... That's the way Luke wants us to read it. He starts the parable that way, and he ends the parable with that kind of moral. Um, What does he say? Um, Just the verse right before that. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that uh, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Luke is always doing that. You have to be careful with Luke because Luke is going to tell you how to read the parable. 
And sometimes it kind of narrows the focus. Luke's a good guy. He wrote a gospel, you know, all right. <laughs> but, but he also kind of tries to make you read it a certain way. And uh, so who, who's he talking to? Who, who are the ones that kind of regarded themselves as being Pharisees? We always think that, don't we? Guess what? Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to us. When we start thinking better of ourselves, you know, you know that uh, um, when we like to put people in certain roles and we're like the better people, you know, in those roles are going on and everything. The parable begins with two men who go up to the temple to pray. And uh, one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. You know about that. Now, in this story, both of these people are caricatures. That is, they are exaggerations and they're not meant to depict anyone in particular. Rather, they, they represent the two poles on the righteous spectrum, if you will. One is really, really righteous, and the other is really, really not. And so, <clears throat> it's a parody of how we divide up the world, of how, how um, we divide up the world into good guys and bad guys, into insiders and outsiders, the haves, the have-nots, the uses and the dems, you know, <clears throat> and it's, it's where we can't have one without the other. And this parable is a parody of that. So, in order for this parable to do its thing, we got to dump some baggage. And this is the baggage around our Pharisees. I know these are the guys that we love to hate. I mean, Dickens couldn't have created a better bad guy. You know, we just, you know, you ever um, read, uh, was it uh, David Copperfield? You know, Squeers. I mean, just the name makes you hate him, you know? Or Scrooge, you know? These are caricatures that, that are there. And we've got to dump all of that. Just, just, yeah, we, we have this idea that the, the Pharisees, for ages they've been portrayed this way, that, that they're snooty, self-righteous, hypocritical, hard-nosed prigs who reject the grace of God for the, for the um, sake of the law. Right? I mean, that's usually how we think Pharisee, you know, like that. And are you ready? That is simply wrong. Mm. Sorry to shock you, but it is wrong. You have to take that image and you have to scrub it from your mind and scour it from your thoughts. Josephus is a first century historian, and, and he gives us a completely different picture. The Pharisees were sincere people who invested themselves to living a holy life in obedience to Torah. 
They were generous to the poor, and they took up the poorest causes before the magistrates. They were educated, dedicated, and motivated. They were the pillars of society, respected for their virtue, leaders in their community. And when the neighborhood kids would get together and play Pharisees and robbers, <clears throat> everybody wanted to wear the yarmulke and the talit. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> they are the type of folks you hope move in next door or join the, join the church or join the rotary. They, like I say, were sincere and they worked hard to improve people's lives. And in fact, and this may surprise some of you, are you ready? This, just, just hang on. The ushers are getting some oxygen to pass around here, but <clears throat> in the book of Acts, we read that some Pharisees were members of the early church community. Maybe they're not the bad guys that we like to think they are. Then we have the other guy who is a tax collector. Now, if you remember, these guys weren't winning any popularity contests. I mean, they were revenuers. That's what they were. And these, it said folks thought of these folks as kind of like akin to scum. And that's because he was the front man who took the money from people for the Romans, and he probably was jacking up his price to line his own pockets. And it was his face that people identified with the oppressive taxes. He was the target of, of scorn because people saw him as a collaborator with the imperial occupation. The tax collector was a traitor to the people. So, without a doubt, these two were, were extremes. They both went up, though, to the temple to pray. And it was probably during um, the atonement sacrifice ritual that occurred twice a day. And, you know, at a certain point in the service, um, each person could offer up prayers to God. And the Pharisee offers up his prayers. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people who are extortionists, swindlers, adulterers, or even like the tax collectors. And initially, when we hear that, we think, well, la-dee-da, to him, what a hoity-toity sanctimonious snob. However, keep two things in mind. One, he is praying a prayer that is prescribed in the Talmud. Second, he is thanking God that he's not a crook. He's thanking God, I'm glad I don't rob people. I'm glad I don't hurt people. You see, and he's giving God the credit for his good fortune. He's giving God the credit for the fact that he has a chance to be virtuous, you see. And that's a part of the prescribed prayer. You know, we, we always say, oh, he's being full of himself, he's stuck on himself, but that's not what's going on. It's how we've interpreted it. So if he's doing what he's supposed to do, 
you know, and, and he's giving God the glory for his blessings, can we really criticize him? You know, he then goes on. He lists his virtues. Um, I, I, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. And that's the point that if you were listening to that, that, that kind of makes him into a caricature. He exceeds Torah. And, and he's like, um, in this story, he's like, super righteous man <laughs> whose merits outstrip his faults in a single bound. You know? And yet, and so, so he's, he's like super, super righteous guy, right? So how in the world does he end up being the villain of the story? Let's put a pin in that. <clears throat> now, the camera focuses on another person, and that's the tax collector who happens to be standing far off, trying to keep a low profile, and it makes you wonder what he was doing there in the first place. I mean, did he really think that his prayers were going to make a difference? I mean, could he ever make up for his crimes? He couldn't afford to pay everyone back, let alone remember all those who he's cheated. Why didn't he just hug the shadows and skulk through the eastern gate and go home? You know, that would have been easier. You know, it's far easier to just kind of reject the faith. You, you, you magnify the faults and summarily dismiss it altogether. Why didn't he just accept his fate that he was on the other side of the line, that he would never be counted among the company of the righteous. I don't know. But I think something broke open in this guy. You know, that, that his remorse was raw and it was real. And Ken Bailey, who serves, uh, or had served as chair of the biblical department in the Near Eastern School of Theology in Beirut, um, has studied the parables of Jesus. And he's asking, he asked the question, what would somebody in a Middle Eastern culture, um, how would they hear um, Jesus' parables? You know, how would somebody in an honor-shame culture hear this parable? And so he studied that. He's made some pretty remarkable observations. You know, for example, he noticed the tax collector was, was beating his chest. And he says that in that culture, this is a sign of intense grief. You know, it is, it is all of a sudden we have this parody and then he's beating his chest, and all of a sudden, it's at this moment that it becomes genuinely human. You know, describes, Jesus describes this guy as showing deep remorse, and all of a sudden, the little, you know, little grins that we have about, you know, super righteous men and, and, and the whole scenario changes, and it gives us enough pause the way Jesus describes it, we know something significantly going on in this guy. <clears throat> and that it would probably have gotten people's attention. And then Jesus leaves it hanging. We don't know what happens after that. You know, did the ushers come in and, and quietly escort him to the gate? You know, all, all we know is that at the end of the surface, when everybody went out for coffee and donuts... We read that he was righteous rather than the Pharisee. 
or at least that's how it's been translated. Are you ready for the other shoe to drop? Mm -hmm. The word that is used here. Now, first of all, rather than you know, rather than the, the other guy. Um, that's a legitimate translation, but there are other translations that change the meaning of this parable. And the word in question is the word para. And in the Greek, it can mean rather than, but it also has other legitimate meanings. For instance, it is the preposition indicating something that is alongside the other. Think of parallel. Paradox, parafoil, perigene, parable. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> in this regard, in this regard, the connotation is not in opposition to, but it is in a juxtaposition. Instead of saying, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. Suppose Jesus said, this man went down to his home justified alongside the other. That changes everything. Everything is changing. Ah, these parables are blowing my mind. No, stop it, stop it, Jesus. What's going on? Remember I asked, what, how did the Pharisee end up being the villain of the story when he was the righteous guy? Suppose he didn't end up the villain. Suppose that this story doesn't have villains in the end. Suppose that everyone ends up being righteous and there is no one to scorn or blame or exclude. You know, this parable has been interpreted as the great image of the eschatological reversal. That is, where those on the outside were suddenly on the inside, and those on the inside suddenly found themselves on the outside. The roles are reversed, but the paradigm is the same. You know, people often define themselves over and against another. It's that us-them duality um, where us, we are defined by not being the them. Who are we? We're not them. Well, who are they? They're not us. <clears throat> okay. Well, what makes us us? Well, we're not them. Well, what makes them them? Them. Did I, how many, did I get the right number of thems in there? Okay. <laughs> Whatever it is, they're just not us, you know. Well, can them become us? Sure, it's no longer there being them. Mm, you know, it seems like human societies were always defining um, a them. Someone that doesn't belong. Someone who doesn't fit in. Whose differences or uniqueness is exploited in such a manner that makes them a target. That excludes them. That ostracizes them. Just think of the xenophobic rhetoric that is being used against refugees, against anyone who doesn't fit the Euro-Anglo mold. Think of the gloating that is going on. 
when people are being killed. Mm. How we dehumanize the other because they're them. You know, it shapes politics, it shapes economics, it shapes entertainment and culture and social structures, etc., etc. It's as though we need a fall guy to give us a sense of stability and security. We need enemies to feel good about ourselves. And I wonder, I wonder if that is why this parable has been interpreted so that the Pharisee is the fall guy. The human paradigm of exclusion is the same. We've just shuffled the characters. And maybe, though, Jesus is showing us that God's righteousness doesn't need a contrast, that it doesn't need an unrighteousness in order for it to be what it is, that God's righteousness is defined by God's heart, not by some anti-righteousness out there. You know, the scripture shows that Jesus' perspective is different, that we are not defined over and against another. Rather, we are defined along beside each other. We're defined as community, not as combatants. Suppose that this parable is about the great eschatological inclusion, where they're all in it together. You know, the posture of both the Pharisee and the tax collector is not one of antagonism. It's one of conciliation. And maybe this parable isn't so much about who the Pharisee and the tax collector are. Maybe it's about who God is. God, who in the end doesn't play by our rules of exclusion, that, that we dress up in righteous piety. Rather, this is a God who breaks the rules that define and keep out people, who erases the lines, who tears up the labels into little, little bits and throws them to the wind. You know, remember, Jesus was telling this parable to some who thought of the world as a type of zero-sum game, where there were winners amongst the losers, where there were the superiors amid the inferiors. And I think Jesus was inviting them, I think Jesus is inviting us to imagine the kingdom of God differently. To imagine the kingdom of God that doesn't need a fall guy in order to stand. A kingdom that is not shaped by prejudice and exclusion, but one that's shaped by God's love. Amen. I've got a great amen corner in the back there. Yeah. A kingdom where the sound of a child will you unite a community in love. The kingdom that encompasses, embraces, and includes the whole world. Just imagine that. Imagine it. Now, go out and make it so. Amen.